Hi, I'm Matt Mandel, and you're listening to Something to Consider, the podcast where I sit down and talk to today's most interesting thinkers, innovators, and leaders about their work. Today, I spoke with George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and the father of synthetic biology. Dr. Church has been behind many of the breakthroughs in gene sequencing, gene editing, and all the other crazy things one can do with genes over the last few decades. He's the co-author of 499 papers, 143 patent publications, and one book called Drogenesis, which I highly recommend. In this conversation, Dr. Church explains the basics of gene sequencing and editing, and then we discuss some of the incredible ways he's using these techniques to change the world, such as projects to bring woolly mammoths back from extinction, research into how to reverse the effects of aging, and programming E. coli to produce petroleum products in a clean way. In all candor, had I read Dr. Church's book or had this conversation with him when I was in high school, there's a pretty good chance I would have come out a biology major. This stuff is mind-blowing. Dr. Church, thank you so much for coming on today. So I listened to your story on the moth, which I have to say was absolutely great and really funny. You mentioned that you grew up with your mother and her mother in a boarding house. Can you talk a bit about what life was like growing up and how you first got interested in science? Well, my grandmother ran the house. Uh, and, uh, it was her her house. So she just needed to, to make ends meet. Uh, um, and we were only there for a, a little while. And then my mother became a lawyer, uh, and, uh, and I moved to uh, another city from Sarasota to Tampa, Florida, surrounded by science. I, there was no science uh, in my vicinity. Uh, in fact, they, they didn't even teach science in my school until they, they hired a science teacher wow. in seventh grade. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I, I got it. But nevertheless, even though it was a vacuum, I got excited about it, I think, some combination of uh, my third father being a physician, and and uh, I went to the World's Fair in 1964 when I was 10 years old, and uh, and just being surrounded by natural beauty uh, on the on the waterfront uh, for most of my uh, formative years, I just I just got addicted to it uh, in in every form, uh, just everything ranging from. From math to physics to, to to biology, so and of course, uh, your interest in science has taken you very far. Uh, people have called you the father of synthetic biology, uh, which I have to admit, in ninth grade biology class, we learned ecology and physiology. We didn't really talk about synthetic biology. Uh, can you give like a quick and dirty definition of synthetic biology to kick off the conversation? Yeah, well, synthetic biology is just really a, a buzzword that was invented to slightly distinguish it away from uh, other things like synthetic chemistry, for example, is a, an older term uh, and, in, in a, and includes a lot of what you mean by synthetic biology. And you could call uh, um, molecular biology and recombinant DNA are, are concepts that are in there as well that are pretty old. Uh, but the basic idea is that you're engineering the molecular components of biology. You're not just making um, prosthetic arms or something. You're, you're, you're doing things at the molecular level. And biology is particularly good at making things with atomic precision, um, and that's why it is the, the logical heir um, inheritance of, of uh, many other fields of en engineering, because almost anything that you can build atomically precisely at scale, you can make just about anything. I read your book, Regenesis, and as I was flipping through it and seeing some of the applications of your work, or, you know, your actual work, 
uh, it felt like science fiction. And if I weren't physically sitting across from the man who created those things right now, I probably wouldn't believe that they actually existed. Uh, it's really amazing the kinds of things that you guys are getting up to. And I think we'll come back to the applications in a minute. Before we do that, though, it's probably important to do some upfront talk about the basic concepts in uh, your work. So can you give like a high-level definition or explanation of gene sequencing and gene editing? Right. So a, a big component of molecular engineering or synthetic biology is ability to read, write, and edit DNA. Because from DNA, you can make RNA protein and all kinds of other molecules and materials. Uh, so the def one would define reading DNA the same is uh, DNA is long polymers, uh, long strings, you can call them, of A, C's, G's, and T's. Those are the four main bases. Those, um, and you can read them in a variety of ways. Uh, all of them ultimately involve single molecules, either amplified or uh, read directly by fluorescence or by um, um, their physical properties, like their uh, uh, interference with a con conducting pore uh, or nanopore. Um, so that's how you read it. Then, then at writing or editing involves uh, synthesis. It could typically organic chemical synthesis of, of any DNA. The computer, in both cases, it's the intermediate. You either read from natural DNA into the computer or from the computer into um, back into, into DNA form through organic chemistry. And then you can stitch those into the correct place in very complicated uh, DNA in the nucleus or in, in, in a living cell, um, leveraging natural processes in the cell that, that allow it to repair its DNA. You're basically tricking it into thinking the foreign DNA is something it needs to repair. Uh, I think to the extent that people have heard about uh, ideas either a part of this field or adjacent to it, They've heard of CRISPR. Uh, more realistically, they've probably heard some horror stories about CRISPR, which is something that you co-invented. Uh, can you explain what CRISPR is and how it fits into this picture? Yeah, so I, I personally consider CRISPR a rather minor player, but it has it has the advantage. It has the buzzword has gotten people's attention. I I, I think of it as an icon, where. Um, it represents a, a broader set of concepts. You know, I mean, like say, like Coca-Cola is not the only uh, sweet beverage. Uh, right. You know, it, in a way, it represents all carbonated beverages and maybe even all sweet beverages, including lemonade, uh, be, and maybe the obesity uh, epidemic. It could re represent a lot of things, okay. but CRISPR represents. Um, other editors, including zinc fingers and talons, and the jargon isn't so important as to know that there are many editors. It's just, it, I would say CRISPR is a, a fourfold improvement on previous technologies, meaning it's about four times cheaper. Um, and it allows us to, it, it, it essentially was, allows us to change, it mainly allows us to subtract DNA uh, or to subtract gene function. So by Removing a, a base or two, it messes up the ability of a gene to, to do its job. Um, there are other methods for adding DNA and for precisely editing DNA. CRISPR is not particularly good at those other two things. So I would say that editing really should include all three, adding, subtracting, and, and precise e editing. 
Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. If I were like editing a paper, I wouldn't just be removing words. I'd also want to add them and then also change them. Uh, and so you talked about how CRISPR is a fourfold improvement over previous uh, similar tools. I think I read, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, the price of sequencing and writing DNA, uh, DNA has made a million-fold reduction. Yeah, it's about 10 million-fold, wow. and, and it's likely to be 100 million-fold within a couple of years. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, a big difference between the recent progress in editing and the recent progress in, in sequencing. And you need sequencing or reading in order to do editing. It's just like with editing a book. You right. can't edit if you can't read. And you really need to know the whole book because even if you're editing one little chapter, you could accidentally do something in that chapter that has ramifications for other parts of the book. So you really need to keep the whole book in it. And the same thing's true for, for editing DNA. Um, when we published the first paper that that caused the transition of from CRISPR being a, like a biological odd observation into a real technology, we we anticipated this this problem of thinking about the whole genome, thinking thinking globally, acting locally, and so we wrote we included software in that first paper that that would scan the entire genome. Now, since then, there have been improvements in the software and various experimental tools as well. But that still remains a problem, the so-called off-target, um, and the importance of thinking about the entire genome. And I think, I think there's some deep philosophical lesson <laughs> there. So I, I thought it was important to note the 10 million-fold decrease in price in order to flag the thought that this isn't just like a theoretical field or a field that's completely nascent, but you've actually made like real tangible gains uh, in the field since you started out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean... Um, you mentioned earlier science fiction. A lot of these things did seem like science fiction at one point, and you know the fact that I'm here doesn't doesn't weigh upon that. What, what what's important is what's out in the in uh, public domain or in, in effect, impacting society, or in some cases just impacting researchers. The 10 million fold change in DNA sequencing enables all kinds of new things. Uh, uh, for example. Non-invasive prenatal testing is probably one of the bigger ones. Millions of, of women now benefit from that. But, but you can use DNA for all kinds of things like um, you know, looking at diagnostics for pathogens, diagnostics for cancer, um, looking for um, ancient DNA, for forensic information um, of more recent nature and so on. So it's really blossomed tremendously because of this uh, decrease in price. Now some things, if you brought the price down 10 million fold, it would not be good for the, the industry. So right. if you brought down the cost of, say, cars 10 million fold, you would not sell 10 million times as many cars. But with DNA, apparently you, there's an insatiable appetite, and then just as the price comes down, the, the, the need and the, and the purchasing goes up. So I'm also happy that you mentioned some of the more, I don't want to say mundane, but maybe more like everyday or less crazy applications of uh, this technology, such as um, prenatal screening and forensic applications, because uh, I really want to talk about some of the crazier things. Mm -hmm. uh, so turning to that now, when I think of E. coli, I think first food poisoning. Uh, and then when I like, you know, really think back to ninth grade biology, I remember that it's a bacteria that exists in my gut. Uh, I never think about E. coli's way to produce petroleum, which is something that I understand that you've done. Can you talk a bit about uh, your work with E. coli and some of the crazy applications that... Right. So 
so, so E. coli is an example of an industrial microorganism. There are not that many of them, but it, E. coli is one of the main ones. Another one that more people know about is, is uh, yeast, which is used in baking and brewing um, and many other industrial processes. You can make almost any chemical um, using uh, bacteria, sometimes called green chemistry, because you're not necessarily, you could use lower levels of toxic chemicals, so you have waste stream is more uh, benign. Uh, you can use lower temperatures, and so your energy consumption might be lower. And so there's a lot of interest in using um, bacteria to um, efficiently manufacture a whole variety of chemicals or m polymers or materials that, you know, plastics and so forth. And so it's one of the, most of the carpeting in the world now is made by a process that involves an E. coli chemical that was engineered. Um, and so it's, it happens to also be one of the ma major workhorses in research. And so almost everybody, that, no matter what organism they work on as their primary organism, they also use E. coli to help them do the molecular uh, engineering that they need to do. And part of the reason for that is that E. coli reproduces at an extremely rapid pace, right? And so the thought is if you can make one change in its DNA, then that'll get replicated many times over across the local population. That's right. So um, E. coli doubling time is about uh, 20 to 30 minutes. And put that in perspective, you know, like the fastest, you know, say plants, uh, animals are are in, on the order of 24 hours, um, which, which is also pretty fast. Uh, human doubling time is more on the order of, of uh, decades. Um, but there is a fast organism, which we also work on, which is called Vibrio nitrogens. Uh, but it's, it's about twice as fast as E. coli. But they, they're both very closely related, and they can be used for similar things. And so the example of uh, using E. coli for petroleum uh, was brought up in your book, Regenesis. Uh, which came out in 2012. And this feels like a pretty fast-moving field. So I want to get an update on where you were with that or uh, what other products you're working on, what kind of manufacturing. So the key thing is not so much petroleum or bioenergy, which I think was a bit of a fad. Okay. Uh, in fact, it was a pathological fad uh, when, when, uh, when people were going from corn to ethanol. In fact, I think people even knew, people who were promoting it even knew at the time. Uh, I, th I think the breakthrough for um, E. coli making um, alkanes, meaning a, it's a kind of it's, it's what's what's in diesel fuel and in gasoline, it's just carbon and hydrogen, was the ability to remove the oxygens from it, and that was just a bit of biochemistry that we didn't know how to do prior to the work of using E. coli to make fuels, um, but 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 now I would say that most of the emphasis is on making a whole variety of of uh, chemicals that used to be made from petroleum, they can, you can either use E. coli or other organisms to, ma to make them from petroleum, or you can use them to make them from other uh, sources of, um, you know, like carbon dioxide, which you take it out of the air, you, and now you can turn it into useful things rather than turning it into a global warming gas. Wow. So it's kind of like doubly good for the environment in that you're sequestering carbon dioxide and also not burning uh, petroleum as a middle step in producing whatever product you want to make. That's incredible. So I also have to ask, uh, there's at least two clips of you going on Stephen Colbert's show, uh, first on the Comedy Central show and then on the Late Night show. And in the first clip, you uh, come on the show with 20 million copies of your book, Regenesis, 
which is only feasible because the 20 million uh, books worth of information is stored in DNA. And so it's a tiny little dot on this tiny piece of paper that has 20 million books worth of information. And Stephen Colbert tries to eat the piece of paper and consume all those copies of the book. First, I want to ask, what was it like being on Stephen Colbert's show? And then second, can you talk a bit about uh, using DNA as a way to store information? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it's wonderful being uh, um, <clears throat> in a situation where, where science is, is being taken seriously and funny at the same time. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the fact is uh, Stephen Colbert is a very intelligent person and his staff is terrific as well, and, and they, they work hard to bring science to people so people get curious on a few subjects and then maybe that caused them to have a lifetime level of curiosity. Um, it's things like that, that that brought science to me and brought me to science. So I, I am greatly appreciative of, of Stephen and people like him. Um, the, the thing that was dramatized in that particular case, which was actually fairly spontaneous, obviously I brought the sample with me, but the, the rest was fairly spontaneous, um, is that um, We've been look. I mean, we have a crisis of information storage. We're trying to store exabytes, which means ten, ten to the eighteenth uh, bytes of information, and uh, and this this costs uh, billions of dollars uh, and, and is growing. And um, DNA has the advantage that it lasts a long time. It uh, has a record so far of seven hundred thousand years, which is well beyond any disk drive that I know of. Um, it has a density that's about a million times higher density and it has essentially zero um, energy cost. Even the copying of the DNA is close to the theoretical limit for um, information uh, duplication. Um, it's within a factor of 10 of that, uh, of that theoretical limit. Wow. So uh, it, has, it has advantages, and the barriers to scaling it up uh, seem modest, at least to someone like me who's lived through exponentials of, you know, uh, 10 million fold right. already. Uh, and, and this is now embodied in a, in a, a program uh, from IARPA, a government agency who's uh, deeply involved in information and intelligence gathering and, and uh, storage and, and computing. Uh, and they're trying to, to encourage this, this small field that already has major companies involved like Technicolor and Microsoft. So there's some, uh, some momentum uh, right now on that topic. Maybe this is just like further down the horizon of, okay, maybe we can, you know, replace disk drives with DNA. Could we at any point replace our computers with DNA? And we go, you know, like 70 years ago, computers were the size of a room. Now we'll talk about how they're in our pocket. One day will we have computers that are the tiny dot on uh, the paper that you gave to Stephen Colbert? Um, what, yeah, so, so I think that that uh, computers are, are already biological, and the, the most powerful computer in the world is the human brain. Mm -hmm. um, um, and th that human brain is also very energy efficient, not quite as efficient as DNA uh, polymerase itself, but very close. And, and it's, for example, um, in the and even when the human loses a game to a computer, like Jeopardy or Go, uh, the computer is consuming 100,000 watts of, of electricity, wow. while the human brain is consuming about 20 watts. 
Um, so you could say it's not completely fair. Uh, and that's and that's the human hasn't really been optimized for that sort of task. In fact, that those tasks were especially these kind of highly mathematical or memory tasks are chosen to be inhuman or you know very uncharacteristic of what humans are really good at, which is things like thinking out of the box, coming up with completely new ideas, uh, inventions, being able to recognize um, um, family members in, in a crowded moving, you know, a, a crowd that's moving tumultuously. Right. Um, there are all kinds of things a, a five-year-old can do that, that, that the most advanced even computer, even with 100 kilowatts, can't accomplish. So I think we're ahead and we're going faster. I mean, the, the, the Moore's Law is kind of going slower and slower while the, the bio, biotech equivalent is going faster and faster, sometimes as fast as a tenfold improvement in a year. Wow. Um, while, a, you know, even at its heyday, the Moore's Law for silicon was on the order of 1.6-fold per year. So, um, so, and also in, any kind of biological computer interfaces better with our, with our brains. Right. Uh, so there's there's another advantage to pursuing that line. I, I don't think it's going to be either or. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting hybrid systems, at least for a while. That makes sense. Um, but biology is particularly good at atomically precise manufacturing. So on the theme of uh, you know improving on humans or like improving on the hardware that we have, uh, there's a really interesting chapter in the book about comparative genomics, which is the thought of uh, if we can read someone's genome and identify what genes do what, then if we see a trait in nature that we like, we can then write that or edit that into the human genome and give ourselves traits that are desirable. Uh, in the book, you give the example of the naked mole rat, which apparently is a nearly 100% cancer-resistant organism. And so if we can somehow find how what gene causes the naked mole rat to be so resistant to cancer, we could then write that into human DNA and then thereby get rid of human cancer. Um, so first, I was wondering, what's is this a far-off idea, or is it something that we can kind of do now, and there are just ethical concerns for implementing it with humans? Um, and then second, what what's the process of uh, changing an organism's DNA like? Can you do that with an already living organism, or is that something that you have to manufacture at, like, uh, conception? So you can. There's some very powerful things you can do. Um, if you if you engineer from conception onward, and and probably some of the best examples are what we've done with pigs to make them suitable for donating organs to humans, um, and that involves uh, quite a number of changes, including making them safer by removing all the endogenous viruses. That, that was 62 changes all by itself, and a lot of changes in the immune system, clotting, and, and coagulation systems. Um, you can introduce, um, uh, the, getting back to the cancer problem, you can, sh uh, putting naked mole rat aside for a second, or bowhead whales, which li live even longer, they live 200 years, um, you, can, you can take what we know, what we know about uh, senescence and cancer and from a variety of basic um, model organisms and basic cell biology, and we can apply that in, a, say, a mouse and we can make the mouse live twice as long as it normally lives um, by, for example, three genes are sufficient to protect it from cancer, and, and mice tend to die of cancer even though they only live two years. Um, and then 
and then you can, uh, then there's about 10 different pathways involved in senescence, and those are understood. Um, about 10 pathways for cancer and another 10 pathways for senescence, and, and, to, and you can finesse these simultaneously. Now, um, we might do that in the pigs um, because if the pigs are going to be donating organs to humans, um, you want them to be the best they can be. So you want them to be resistant to pathogens. You don't want them to senesce prematurely or get cancer. Um, and so you might want to take what we've learned from mice and apply it to pigs. Um, but you can also do it, in, and so that would go, that would be one way of getting it into humans is you make a, uh, a super pig organ slightly, you know, maybe greatly enhanced, put into a human. Another way is gene therapy. Um, we're specifically working on gene therapies that do aging reversal, not, not longevity, but reversal of aging, which makes um, the mice, so far have been tested in mice, makes them uh, younger, makes them more resilient to, uh, to trauma. And, and handles five diseases of aging um, in, in, in mice, which include uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, kidney and heart failure, and osteoarthritis. And this will be reported soon in, in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and so we're applying that to dogs and then, and then to humans as, as, as uh, aging reversal, FDA-approved gene therapies, combination gene therapies. So that those are two routes, and then and then the germline is is, is how we do the pigs. Um, while the the gene therapy we typically do by a viral vector like AAV, adeno-associated virus, that encapsulates the, the payloads and delivers them to any any tissue or all tissues. So the thought is, uh, if next week you you know are able to get through the FDA and you have this aging reversal. Um, virus is that the right is it a virus yeah then i could get a shot of the virus and i would start or maybe not me but you know my dad could start aging in reverse yeah that's incredible and is the thought that mice are so much simpler than humans and dogs that there's a risk that this doesn't work or are you pretty confident that it'll kind of scale up uh through the animal kingdom and we're not so far off from not having to deal with uh old age anymore um I'm pretty confident that, that, that we know enough about the various pathways of aging that there will be various combination therapies, probably gene therapy is particularly powerful and easy route. Um, uh, mice aren't a perfect model for humans. That's why do dogs are much better. They're, they're, they're larger animals. They live in human environments. We, uh, they eat our food. We respond to their emotions. So it's a better test case, um, but it would be a, it'll be a very it seems to be going quite quickly from mice to dogs to humans. So, and so, um, but everything has to go through these these safety and efficacy stages. It's very important. So you're saying that very calmly, but what you're saying is that it might not be that far off that old age is gone from the human story. We're probably going to die of something, uh, but what we could do is. Um, um, might be able to get a little bit better control over um, uh, the costs and the, and the anxiety and the anguish at end of life. Um, uh, so many people who live a long time die quite quickly and, and, and painlessly. Um, maybe that would be, a, a, you don't want to prolong the, the worst part of your life, but you might want to 
get some aging reversal. It would, if anything we could do to delay uh, retirement would also have positive economic consequences. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, even if it's even if it only delays by ten years, if it delayed 10 only years, ten years, it, yeah, it did it worldwide. That would have a, a big. Yeah, it would buy us some time to think of some other clever things. Yeah, no, that's incredible. Something that you've been working a lot on is the personal genome project, which, unlike the human genome project, you're actually sequencing individuals' entire genomes, right? Correct. And so, suppose I were to participate in this study or this project, and find that I had some genes that suggested I would develop Alzheimer's later in life. Is there anything that I could do with that information now to act against that uh, result? Well, so, I mean, you need to break it up depending on the individual. So some individuals don't want to know anything about themselves, but they could still benefit from their genome. Their physician could, could, do some, could uh, prescribe something for the actionable subset. Uh, there'll be another set of people who want to make decisions uh, that would influence their children. So, for example, matchmaking, deciding who you're going to marry, um, has been used to almost completely eliminate very, very serious diseases like Tay-Sachs. Right. Um, and there's a third category where, where things that you can do for adult onset diseases, <clears throat> cancer, heart disease, say. Um, and then there's a fourth category where there's nothing to be done right at the moment. Nevertheless, even in that extreme case where there's nothing you can do for your kids and there's nothing to do for yourself right at the moment, you can do things like you can um, uh, raise consciousness uh, in y yourself and others. Right. You can participate in research studies. Um, uh, you, you can donate your DNA and your information in that direction. You can uh, raise funds. Um, for the research. So there's a, there, there, there are a few things. You, you can make decisions about where you would like to, where would be the best place to have that disease. So it could be that some diseases are better in a northern or southern or wet or dry climate. So, sure. so there's uh, decisions to be made even if there's not a, a medical action. I don't know what like, the ethical dimension here is, so if you can't say anything, that's understandable. Uh, but do you, do you find that most people who participate want to know as much information as possible? Or do people not want to know about the kinds of diseases that you wouldn't be able to do much about? So, I, I mean, there, again, there, there's different selection biases. People that participate in the Personal Genome Project want to um, tend to be on the altruistic side and they want to benefit society. Uh, fair, I would say more than average, they are curious um, and they don't. And, and they don't care whether it's actionable or not. Um, I think in the broader population, people want uh, a lot more assurance that they're not going to be uh, exposed to something that is not actionable. They don't want to know about something if there's, it's not actionable. So, uh, I, I don't know uh, the exact percentage, but quite a few. Some of them don't want anybody else to know uh, anything, whether it's actionable or not. Uh, so they want a lot of privacy. Some of them don't even want their physician or their family to know. And I think all of this is feasible. There's benefit that can be gained for having a computer know your sequence, even if, even, and it's also possible to make it so that the insurance companies and your doctors and so forth do not know your sequence. Uh, there's still benefit that can be had, like, like matchmaking, where you can uh, avoid, um, you know, million-dollar and very uh, tragic um, get cases of Mendelian diseases.
Uh, you said that most of the people who participate are doing it for altruistic reasons. By that, do you mean altruistic in the sense of they'll like prevent their child from having Tay-Sachs or their external benefits like strangers from participating in something like the Personal Genome Project? Uh, in the Personal Genome Project, I think people are, are uh, hoping that their genome will be useful to science, uh, scientists because it's the only open source of such information. All the other sources are closed in little silos and it's very hard to share. A subset of the people in the Personal Genome Project um, have family diseases and they figure that, that by participating they increase the probability that particular disease will be cured or prevented sooner. And then in terms of research going on with the Personal Genome Project, how long has it been going for? Uh, so the, the first IRB approval was in 2004, 2005, oh, wow. me meaning uh, the, the ethics board that on human subjects research. Um, it really got momentum around 2009 when we started publishing first, com you know, high quality complete genomes. Um, and then uh, to 2015, we, we, we finally had a company, that w Veritas Genetics, that was uh, good enough at this that they could produce a sub-thousand dollar genome. So we brought the price down from $3 billion in the Human Genome Project, which is actually a, a terrible quality genome from a clinical standpoint because it, it only had 3 billion base pairs and a clinical genome has to have 6 billion, meaning uh, representing your mother and your father. And the Human Genome Project was constructed in a, in a poor way to build towards clinical genomes because it really, it was A, expensive, and B, didn't distinguish between the, the uh, chromosomes, which came from mother and father, and that's extremely important for interpretation. Turning now to something else entirely, looking at the, so on, on your website, you have a list of all the media uh, coverage that you get, and I have to say that I noticed a pretty fair, uh, a, a completely disproportionate share of that coverage was on one product in particular, which is uh, the de-extinction of the woolly mammoth. I'm not sure why that is that the media focused on that product so much compared to everything else that we were just talking about, which I think is absolutely mind-blowing. But I have to ask a bit about uh, the woolly mammoth. Can you describe that project in a bit of detail? Yeah, I, it is quirky what the press covers. They tend to cover what they think people are interested in, and I think in this case they're correct that people are <clears throat> have this quirky interest in. And I think it has to do with, well, first of all, it's, remarkable that we can read the DNA of uh, ancient elephants. It is, they're, they're very charismatic species. They're, they're, they're large, so they're kind of like dinosaurs, um, but they're a little more cuddly, you know, because right. they have fur, <laughs> and they nurse their young, and they have tremendous memory, and, you know, all the things we like about elephants. Uh, then <clears throat> there's also the various components having to do with the ecosystem that, that the mammoths uh, were maintaining, and and we, at least some of us, think that we really need them again to to restore that ecosystem so that the we're getting better carbon sequestration and we're not losing the 1,400 gigatons of uh, of uh, methane and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which would be far worse than than anything that we're doing by um, human, current human uh, burning of petroleum and coal. So, uh, so there's a few good reasons that people should be paying attention to it. But I say it, it's curious in the, 
from a scientific standpoint, and I keep reminding the journalists that we ha that they should wait until we publish a peer-reviewed scientific paper. Now, if they had done that, th there were 11 years that this story has been covered, and we we're probably publishing our first peer-reviewed papers this year. So there would have been 11-year gap. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I sympathize with them. And I, I try to answer questions um, as honestly without dodging the questions. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for 11 years, basically, <laughs> is answering whatever wacky questions they come up with, um, which usually are well-intentioned, and, and, and they do get the public engaged on at least one topic of science. And then they look at adjacent things like, like editing human DNA to cure diseases, and then, and then adjacent to that is uh, even cheaper ways of, of avoiding human genetic diseases by genetic counseling, and then bronze the things that really affect our everyday life. Right. Um, so uh, you had a specific question about mammoths? So actually I want to go back a little bit. Um, you talked about how bringing the woolly mammoth back will have tremendous positive impacts on the environment. Uh, that wasn't obvious to me. Can you explain a bit right. what that motivation is? Right. So, I mean, there's elements of speculation both on how we will bring it back and what the consequences would be, positive and negative. Um, for the environment, the, the, there, there is a, a team of ecologists, experimental ecologists. I mean, there aren't that many ecologists and even fewer experimental ecologists. And what they do is they, the hypothesis was that, that humans, possibly aided and abetted by other uh, environmental factors, resulted in a great uh, decrease in herbivores in general in the you know, megafauna in the Arctic, Canada, Alaska, and, and Russia today. And that loss of herbivores resulted in uh, a high ratio of trees to grass. The grass is better in the summertime because it reflects about twice as much sunlight, and it and the sunlight it doesn't reflect, it more efficiently turns into uh, a biomass. And, and so it's much better at sequestering carbon and reflecting light. And then in the winter, presence of herbivores would, would punch the snow down so that instead of being an insulating layer that would keep the 20 degrees centigrade warm summer soil, um, would normally be in equilibrium with the minus 40 degree winds in the winter, but if you have a big, fluffy, downy snow layer, then that like, acts like a down blanket. Huh. And the trees also act to, per, to break the wind and, and, per, per, and, and uh, accumulate fluffy snow. So the main herbivore that's missed, so this, this team is using uh, modern herbivores to, to test that, and they see a huge uh, improvement in the uh, in the carbon sequestration and temperature. The main herbivore that's missing, however, from their experiments uh, are elephant-like species like uh, mammoths. And so uh, because they are unique among even the largest herbivores and they, they can knock down trees. Current herbivores can strip the bark from the trees and effectively kill it, but it will stay standing uh, and, and, and all the negative consequences of the, of the trees for many decades or even centuries because it's so cold there there's not there's not the kind of the turnover of trees that you normally would have so so anyway that's the motivation for bringing an elephant like species it doesn't have to be a, a mammoth necessarily there's we estimate there could be as few as 44 genes that are sufficient to make 
an elephant adapted for the cold, things like woolly, uh, hair, thick hair, right. uh, thick subcutaneous fat, um, uh, blood hemoglobin that's adapted for, the, for cold exchange of oxygen, um, smaller ears. It's, it's a, there's a relatively short list of traits and genes. And, uh, and there may even be a few genes that have no precedent in mammoths or elephants. So for example, um, detoxifying certain plants. There's some animals that are much less sensitive to various plant toxins. So if you could move those into elephants, this kind of gets back to one of your earlier questions. Um, uh, you might want them to be resistant to herpes viruses, which is almost an extinction level um, event that's occurring in Asian elephants, um, not in African elephants. So if you could make the Asian elephants resistant to their herpes virus, that would be great. And then finally, you might want to make the tusks um, not, you know, tiny, so tiny that they would not be interesting to poachers. Mm -hmm. So by moving the elephants into a, a remote region where there's hardly any people and making them tuskless would greatly reduce their, their, the, other form, the other source of extinction in the endangered species of Asian elephant. So herpes virus in humans. Not great that uh, humans are right up there with a virus that is completely out of our control and decimating an animal population, but I guess that is what it is, and we can only uh, use, hopefully use biology to get around that problem. Uh, it's good to know that it's also not just, I think people who've heard about this project might assume that just like a, you're like a mad Frankenstein scientist and you just want to bring something back from the dead for the sake of doing that. Uh, and I guess there might be a bit of that component to that, but it's also about, uh, the ecological and environmental implications. Yeah. People often say, well, you know, why are we messing around with extinct species? We should be focusing on living ones. Well, we are focusing on living ones. The living ones are the... Asian elephant, right. which is on the brink, and uh, and then the, the tundra, which is on the brink of releasing a lot of uh, carbon as as the tundra melts. Um, so those are uh, a key ecosystem and a key uh, <coughs> keystone species uh, for that ecosystem. So we're, we we have our eye on the ball on on living species, and in particular living species that could impact uh, human beings in a big way. So one last uh, molecular engineering application that I was really excited about is clean meat or lab-grown meat. Um, I recently spoke to Bruce Friedrich, who's uh, the executive director at the Good Food Institute, uh, about clean meat. And I was actually surprised to learn that your lab is pretty active on this project. You have a graduate student, I think, uh, working on that too, right? Uh, a couple of people, uh, uh, both a student and a postdoctoral fellow, who right now are on their way to Memphis Meats, which is a company that I'm uh, involved in. So they're transitioning from an academic research on, on clean meat to, to actually producing it for the market. Uh, so I spoke to Bruce a bit about, uh, I guess, like the viability of clean meat. And it was hard for us two non-scientists to talk about it. And so I was wondering if you could give some uh, scientific input on the viability of scaling up uh, everything that they have to do to get it to like economically viable yeah I mean part of the reason I'm attracted to it is I would like I I like the idea of making um, bio, biological materials at scale so sort of at ecosystem scale um, and so clean meat is somewhere in between it's a uh, large scale there's no fundamental reason why you can't produce almost any um, 
material that isn't using rare elements, so it's using common elements like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, which is the phosphorus and sulfur, which are the key parts of biology. If you're if you've got plenty of those elements, and you've got the an enormous trans transformative capability of biological systems, there are many biological um, materials that we make, you know, in the order of dollars per kilogram, and so. Um, we should be able to make any material, no matter how complex. And, and meat's really not that complex. It's one of the less complex things. It's like, it's like wood. Um, wood is I- I- I much more complex than it needs to be for what it's used for, where you just essentially burn it. Um, and meat, you're essentially burning it slowly inside your, your gut, and maybe harvesting a few uh, uh, vitamins and uh, other nutrients. So um, you can make the equivalent of meat purely by uh, photosynthesis for vegetables or, or microorganisms. Um, and there are many, many foods that are desirable, even to meat eaters that are made out of vegetables. Um, but the other way, is, there's no fundamental reason why you can't also make it cost effectively in such a way that it has the texture, the taste, and, and it is every way like meat. It's just um, you didn't, there was no animal involved. And we're doing this Anyway, we were trying to make organs for transplantation, for scientific testing of new therapies. Um, if you can do that at low enough cost, then you can also make meat. Right. And, and I think it's even easier to make meat than to make an organ because meat is dead. You don't have to create a Correct. living system. But it is the reason it's called clean is if you take uh, meat that's been grown in a lab um, and streak it out on a Petri plate, it's, it's sterile. Um, and it does no, no bacteria, viruses, or fungi there. But if you do the same thing for even your best cut of meat at your favorite organic food store or, or regular grocery, you'll, you'll, your, your petri plate will be covered with bacteria, some of which are pathogenic, S- some of which your body can handle, um, but some you can't. Uh, so um, that's, a, that's a, a side benefit. Again, you shouldn't, that shouldn't cost any more. Right. Um, now, re- realistically, when we when we started um, clean meats, uh, some estimated around three hundred thousand dollars a pound, um, which is, you know, ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, it's not economically feasible. Right. But there, but, <laughs> but there, there's no law of physics or biology that stops that from um, going to as low as any any vegetable product. Right. And and in the context of ten million fold reductions in price in other places in this arena, uh, it's not shocking to hear that something that cost $300,000 a few years ago might not cost uh, much more than a Get it down dollars. to tens of dollars per pound and you're competitive with, with current meat. And right. you get, and in principle, you could get it lower. So the two advantages would be clean, oh, sorry, three advantages, it would be clean, um, safe, uh, 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 lower cost, and um, uh, more thoughtful of animals. So I'm kind of curious. I think we just went through a ton of applications of your work. Is there something that you're working on right now that you're most excited about or you kind of want to communicate uh, excitement about? Uh, that we haven't already covered. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're, we're working on the Brain Initiative, which I think that's uh, interesting in terms of cre- creating better computers, better um, treatments for psychiatric disorders, which are arguably the biggest economic impact aside from maybe um, 
cognitive failure and later in life, which is which is another form. You know, it's it's right. actually part of the same thing. So we were talking about aging, um, uh, aging and and youthful um, psychiatric disorders have huge economic impact, maybe the biggest. Um, and so we help start, I help start the Brain Initiative, which is aimed at innovative neurotechnologies. It's not just turning the crank, but really trying to uh, radically change uh, the technology we have, as we have for reading and writing DNA. Some of those could be used for uh, neurobiology as well. Um, we also have a project um, aimed at um, uh, curing uh, diseases in um, infectious diseases worldwide that are carried by vectors. So with gene drives, you can spread uh, good genes through animal, wild animal populations to make them incapable of, of harboring these uh, pathogens, like uh, make mosquito, the Anopheles gambii mosquitoes incapable of har harboring malaria parasites, wow. making the white-footed mouse incapable of harboring the Lyme disease, um, bacterial spirochete, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, uh, dealing with invasive species, there's ways that you can uh, use it for that. So that's that's another interest. And then, the, and then the uh, you know, final one would be uh, we we think we have a way that we can make any organism resistant to all viruses. So we've demonstrated for the industrial microorganism we started on E. coli, but um, we now think. We can do, use the same strategy, which is changing the genetic code. We can use that strategy in plants and animals and in human cells uh, intended for cell therapies and, and transplants. So all other things being equal, if, 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 uh, if all of these could be, if you can make them virus resistant, that would remove uh, a great source of, of problems. That, that's always a plus. Yeah. Um, digging into the virus resistant uh, part a bit. Is that that's not creating mirror life? That's not that idea, right? This is that's another thing we're working on, and but but that's and that would result in virus resistance. But but mirror life is even more powerful, and it would result in resistance to all pathogens, and for that matter, almost any kind of digestive process or degrade biodegradation. So, um, almost all biopolymers, things like uh, you know cotton in your clothes or ropes or um, uh, you know, skin and so forth, those are all subject to uh, attack by natural species, um, but they wouldn't be if they were mirror image. They, 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 any, any attempt to try to eat them would result in indigestion or in, in death of, the, of whatever organism is trying to do that. Um, so that, that, that's, that's one way of, of getting virus resistance but, and many other things. Just pure virus resistance, which is uh, already amazing because it has every every possible viruses, including viruses you've never even studied. You, you never even studied these viruses, and that's uh, that's done by changing the genetic code. So the genetic code is 64 triples of of, of nucleotides, so A, C, G, and T, <coughs> in every possible combination that make, makes 64 triples, and those encode the 20 amino acids plus the stop codon. And even a simple change in that code, which is nearly universal world, you know, in every organism all over the world, even just changing one of those code elements, those 64 code elements, can make you resistant to all, all viruses, or, or most viruses if it's a, it's a particularly benign change. But all, almost all the other changes will result in all viruses. 
And the thought is that you could make that genetic uh, change because some of the codons, which is like a set of three um, A's, T's, C's, or G's, do the same thing. That's so you right. can, like, not lose there's functionality. There's redundancy that we take advantage of, and we've shown this works, that you can move them from one kind of codon to another. So the host of the, the would-be virus infection is protected. You've moved things around inside the host, so the host is unaffected. But when the virus comes in, it has expectations. It wasn't in on the game uh, where you change the code. It's still thinking, oh, it's going to get its old code. It doesn't, and it, it's then broken in every gene. <coughs> it's, and it's broken in every gene, and, uh, and it can't even evolve around it. So that seems, one, really brilliant, and two, like it would have uh, like unfathomable positive impact on humanity. Where where is that project uh, going from here, or like wh where are you now along that timeline? Right. So we've pu published a few papers showing we can do it um, in one codon. We're almost done with, uh, and we've published a little bit on doing a seven codon remapping, which is huge overkill. You really only need one, and and now we're doing it in the, in other organisms. So we're getting it out into industry that uses E. coli already, and then we're doing it for other organisms um, uh, which have virus problems, uh, including hu uh, human cells. Um, and we have a little startup that's doing it for my microbial species called 64 minus X. Um, and then GP Wright, which is an international consortium of about 100 academic labs and with uh, commercial support as well. Um, there we're doing it in, in the larger, more complex genomes like, like human, pig, plants. So it's one thing to sit here and hear you talk about all this, but it'd be another thing to actually live in a world where we've gotten rid of viruses for humans and where we produce all of our materials from uh, E. coli and where you know we can create species to fill ecological niches that we're missing. Do you see a near human future where we have all of these things uh, integrated into our life? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think it's radical speculation at this point. Because I mean, when I started, it seemed like some of the things that have now arrived were that was very speculative. But now that we see the pace at which they're arriving, we see the pace of change. Um, these things become you can start getting a better estimate of when they're going to arrive, and so some of the things I've described are either already in clinical trials or in preclinical animal non-human primate trials or something like that. So you can see that unless something goes wrong, um, you're going to be seeing it in, in human clinical, emerging from human clinical trials in a decade or something like that. Uh, other things, you, um, you know, once a, a company starts getting a certain momentum, uh, then it's either going to be economically feasible or not, right. uh, and it's and most of these things look like they're on a path for at least testing that that economic hypothesis. So one much more lighthearted question: uh, Have you ever seen the movie Gattaca? Uh, uh, twice, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what what did you think of Gattaca? This is like every high school student's uh, first introduction into the world of messing with genes. And I was kind of curious what. Yeah, I don't think it's. It's too far off. Uh, it's not. It's dystopic. Uh, so you know, in the sense that 
someone who's clearly capable of having a big contribution to humanity is is uh, hand, is handicapped by the rules, not by his actual biology. Um, by starting with a, a, a case that, that, that seems a, a, a poor choice, I mean, it's, it's like maybe that wasn't the, the best choice for society in, in that case. But there are other ones, you, you know, more close at hand that, that he was going into space, more close at hand is would you want me to be your truck driver? Um, so I'm narcoleptic genetically and uh, putting me behind the wheel of an 18-wheeler for 12 hours straight would be a very bad decision for society, and I, and I would accept the discrimination against In fact, I don't have a driver's license right now. Uh, I think that's a poor choice of a job for me. Now, whether I'm suited for space is another matter. Uh, so I think that was, that was one uh, component. I think the other, sort of this sort of, uh, it, it didn't really give a feeling for all the other ways that, that society could go. And of course, that's, that's the nature of a narrative. Yeah. Uh, you, don't, you don't explore all the different ways. In my book, I try to explore the ramification, all the different directions to go, some positive, some negative. And so that way we can choose, we have a better chance of choosing the right path is by considering all the, the options. And I think I like in the... I think one of the things I emphasize in, in the book and in discussions since then is the importance of diversity. Um, there's no perfect person, just like there's no perfect means of transportation. You know, there's, there's uh, super tankers for, you know, uh, carrying large loads in the ocean, and there's, there's jets and rockets and bicycles and uh, walking, and there's just a lot of means of transportation, and they each have their niche. And I think this is what we need is not less diversity, which in a certain sense seemed like where Gattaca was going, yeah. but we need more diversity. So I think they got that part backwards. And, 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 and it could be that the, the writers actually had, had exactly the right idea and they wanted to dramatize the consequences we'll of, wrong, of yeah. what could go wrong. Yeah. And I think that's a, a valuable function that, that, um, that these you know, speculative films produce or any film that has a scientific component, whether it's negative or positive, is good because it gets us discussing it. Uh, yeah. And Gattaca certainly had, had some longevity in terms of getting us to discuss these important topics. Yeah. Uh, and then last question. Uh, given all the products that you're working on, I can't imagine that you get around to much like non-technical scientific reading. Uh, but I was wondering if there's a book that you recommend that everyone read, other than Regenesis, of course, which yeah, is a Yeah, well, that, you know, that's... That's semi-technical. Uh, I mean, there's there's science fiction, which you could say is still geeky, technical. <laughs> you know, like like I enjoyed recently the um, three-body problem yeah, Dark a, Forest trilogy. Yeah, recommended that. And, and you know, um, uh, some of these uh, um, have uh, quite human components to them. I, t- I tend to read, you know, even. Even the things that aren't technical tend to have some science in them, like the signature of all things that was that had a human component, but it also had a, a, a naturalist component to it. So, um, yeah, those would be among the uh, top choice. The Martian was another one that had a very human component. You you really feel for this guy, but uh, 
but it appealed to me technically because I could check all the equations that he, <laughs> that, that he was, you know, he was actually using. And it they, checked they, out. They, and it made sense. I mean, the only thing that didn't really check out is that the way they thought about the Martian atmosphere as, as, as like the storm that could throw things. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not as the atmosphere on Mars is 1% the, the density on Earth, so it's, it has limited capacity. Did you see the, uh, I can't remember if it was, was it Mark Wahlberg who's in the movie or, uh, no, Matt Damon movie? Yeah, Matt Damon. Did, did you like the movie? Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I, I, I think I liked the book a little bit better. I mean, they were both good narratives, and yeah. maybe the movie was a little more gripping because you kind of you can get into that Matt Damon's character. But I liked the book because I could like go at my own pace and check things out. Yeah. yeah. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This is really interesting, a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but uh, okay. really fascinating.